0: This is the, um, the fifth in the series of evidence sessions in the LSE's uh, Growth uh, Commission, which is uh, um, going to wind to a magnificent conclusion in, in, in the autumn. Um, I'm the chair today, Richard Lambert. Uh, I'm, it's my pleasant task to introduce the three speakers, and we'll go off first with Hal um, while we've got him. Uh, he's the chief economist at Google, and he's done all kinds of things at the company, including auction design, econometric analysis, finance, corporation... Uh, Policy and public policy and he's also an emeritus professor at the University of California Uh, next up will be uh, John Van Rienen who was known pretty much to everybody here I think full time professor here um, famously enraged every member of the Confederation of French Industry by saying they were all completely hopeless at their jobs (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) and and then uh, uh, my friend Ian Davis who um, spent most of his career at uh, McKinsey Uh, was the um, Chairman and Worldwide Managing Director of uh, McKinsey's uh, between um, 2003 and 2009 and he's now uh, on the boards of uh, several pretty large multinational companies and the purpose of today is obviously uh, to discuss the role of management (coughs) in growth we're going to be covered on Twitter, audio video record, everything, when people get a microphone please speak into it clearly Uh, there will be time at the end uh, for everybody to join the discussion, it is a discussion rather than else. Uh, We should acknowledge our sponsors who are the ESRC and the Higher Education Innovation Fund. Um, And I think with that, uh, we ask you how to kick off, please.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. And uh, one of the reasons I'm happy to be here is I didn't have to fly for uh, 11 hours in a jet to come visit you there uh i thought what i'd try to do is give you a little view from silicon valley so i want to talk about uh how uh, we're looking at these issues here and i do want to emphasize that of course i'm looking at a specific industry and specific uh, environment but i think some of the lessons can be uh, extended to uh, other other uh, environments as well but I, i leave that up to you um I think that we live in a time of, of what I've called combinatorial innovation. And the idea is that every now and then you get a set of component parts that allow innovators to experiment with new ways of, uh, of doing things. So think of the steam engine, think of interchangeable parts, think of uh, electronics, integrated circuits. And now these component parts are basically software protocols and the internet, in the case that I'm most familiar with, but also you're seeing the same thing happening in biotech and robotics. Now, when you're in a period like that, I think it's very, very important to have a conducive uh, environment for experimentation because really nobody knows what works and what we have to do uh, as a society is experiment with different ways that these technologies can improve uh, productivity. So the policy issue that's, that's really at the top of the list, in my view, is how do you reduce the cost of experimentation, encourage people to try different uh, techniques to utilize these uh, component parts effectively, and then um, are able to uh, innovate. Now, this happens within organizations and across organizations. And I think within organizations, the most important and critical factor is that everyone should feel free to make suggestions for improvement and to try to incorporate these technologies into the production process. So Peter Drucker, who, who uh, really saw this coming uh, 30 years ago, has some wonderful quotes on this. But one of the most important ones, I think, is the following. Most discussions and decision-making assume that only senior executives make decisions or that only senior executives' decisions matter. This is a dangerous mistake. So I think Drucker is absolutely right on this. In order to have an innovative organization, you have to have that uh, innovation running throughout the entire organization from top to bottom. Decisions are made at all levels of organization. If you want in- in- innovation, you have to create a climate for it. So examples, uh, at Google, we have an ideas mailing list, which is basically an email suggestion box. And uh, ideas are submitted, Uh, people rank them or vote on them or uh, add to them, critique them, and the suggestions that float to the top of this process uh, tend to be implemented. Uh, We have 20% time where engineers who've been around for a while, are able to devote 20% of their time uh, to their own projects. Now that's not completely uh, unlimited, uh, you do need some managerial uh, approval, your, your team lead has to approve that, but on the other hand, it, it sends a strong message that people uh, can feel free to experiment. Uh, we put people closely together, basically we follow the cubicle culture. Uh, There are tech talks, invited lectures, all sorts of things that try to encourage innovation throughout the organization. Now, one of the important features of information technology is that if you have very good infrastructure, you can do an incredible amount with just uh, very small teams. So Google Scholar, for example, was built by one person, and I asked him how he did it. He said, well, he had great tools to work with. So that's an absolutely critical factor. If you have small teams and great infrastructure, you can accomplish a lot. As economists would say, the capital-labor ratio is a big deal in this, uh, in this industry. But by capital, I don't just mean physical capital, of course, I mean the uh, intellectual capital knowledge capital and so on. And I think one of the questions within the organizations that managers should ask are what factors are impeding your employees from getting the job done? and Peter Drucker also had a wonderful comment on this. He said, organizations that strip away everything that gets in their knowledge worker's way will be able to attract, hold, and motivate the best performers. That will be the single biggest factor for competitive advantage in the next 25 years. So at Google, we have uh, free food, as everybody knows, Bicycle repair, haircuts, laundromats, oil change, car wash, dry cleaning, uh, gyms, all of these facilities are right on campus and that enables the employees to deal with all those mundane things like haircuts and washing your clothes while you're at work and makes you more effective uh, at getting getting your job done. So I think these are all important uh, features. Now, let me turn to across organizations. I was talking about just what management can do inside organizations, but across organizations is more of a a policy issue. Because of this requirement for experimentation, entry should be easy. So the costs of starting a business, we want those costs to be uh, as low as uh, as possible. I don't know what the, start, the cost is of starting a business in UK. Maybe uh, someone there does. How do those costs compare with what happens in, uh, in continental Europe? My guess is they're, they're better. You know, George Bush allegedly said that the French don't even have a word for entrepreneur. <laughs> I, I believe this is an apocryphal story, but you can never be uh, sure. Just this week, there was a nice article in Business Week about the 50 employee rule in France. That uh, if you pass, if you have 50 or more employees, then suddenly you're subject to a huge number of rules. Uh, apparently, in that case, the French are okay with starting companies, but growing a company is, uh, is, is costly. So, there, so you want to have ease of entry, ease of growing, and of course, exit should be easy. Because if you're living in a time when experimentation is critically important, then you want the cost of failure to be low. Now that's a legal issue in terms of bankruptcy and the firm exit, it's a policy issue, and of course it's a social and uh, cultural issue as well, but I think it's very important when you look at this process, this Schumpeterian creative destruction, you want it easy for new firms to enter, easy for those new firms to exit if they don't work out, and of course you want it to be relatively easy for the incumbents to exit uh, if they're displaced by uh, somebody who's providing a much more productive uh, process. And finally, you want these successful experiments to spread because if you've got the innovation going within the firm, if you've got the uh, ease of entry and exit that I alluded to, then you also want to have mobility uh, across jobs in the industry to be encouraged. That's also a cultural and legal issue. You know, it's said that in Silicon Valley, you can change jobs without changing your carpool. And that's attributable in part to the uh, relatively mild anti-compete clauses in uh, contracts. So
2: it means that
1: ideas can move pretty rapidly uh, among different different entities. Okay, so let me uh, say a few words about uh, process innovation. So not all innovation is about big ideas and new products. There's also a very important role for process innovation, using new technology to improve production and business processes. So the Japanese have this nice word, Kaizen, uh, continual improvement. The idea is that whatever you're doing, you should try to continually make it more efficient. And this is, requires really a buy-in at the Production level. This isn't just a, a managerial uh, initiative. It's something that has to be done by the employees, by the workers who are working at the uh, in the actual production processes. Now, again, we're we're blessed in my industry with this uh, innovation of uh, software as a service or cloud computing. It makes it very easy to shift everybody at once to an improved. Uh, production technology, so as you add innovations, as you add new features to your software, you uh, can do it simultaneously across all of your users, and furthermore, it makes it relatively easy to experiment, that is to try variations on the particular process that you're using. So last year, Google ran 10,000 experiments. 5,000 experiments in the search algorithm, 5,000 experiments in the ads algorithm. On the search side, they implemented 400 changes in the search design based on the outcome of those experiments. I don't have the exact numbers on the ad side, but it's it's a similar number. So the critical idea here is to design your systems for experimentation from the beginning. Uh, This is a very difficult thing to do. It requires a lot of uh, discipline, but if you can build a system, uh, it's so much easier if you can build in the capability for experimentation and uh, changing features, tracking features, doing A-B tests uh, from the beginning rather than having to retrofit and add this on uh, secondarily. So this, I think, emphasizes a point I made earlier about the importance of experimentation. I'm going to just say, Two more, uh, two more uh, paragraphs here and then, uh, then stop. I wanted to say one word about uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, we hear a lot of questions come to us. Why is Silicon Valley so successful with startups? Why is it so hard to replicate elsewhere in the world? And one of the reasons is you've got this fantastic one-stop shopping. I mean, everybody knows you can get engineers, you can get managers not so obvious. You can get lawyers, you can get accountants, you can get caterers, logo designers, t-shirt makers, everything you need to, uh, to start your business is available in this one location. And of course, it's very, very hard to assemble all those different capabilities at, at one place. Uh, Wilson Sonsini, one of the big law firms here, they specifically say to startups, your first visit is free. Come in. We'll talk to you. No billing will give you an idea of what it takes from a legal point of view to start a business. And lots of other organizations have the same model because they've seen uh, success in the past. And I think one of the most important things, the critical things, is you need to have role models. That is, people have to say, well, I could be an entrepreneur. I could have a startup. And many, many of the people who've left Google have joined startups because they've seen it happen at Google and they uh, said, well, I saw what happened. Maybe I can replicate it in my business. And in some sense, they're not doing it for the money in the narrow sense of the term. It's not purely a financial motivation. But they're doing it because they want to build, uh, they want to build products, they want to change the world, they want to, to, to uh, be part of this uh, uh, creative process. And I think from what I've read, uh, again, this is something that I'm not uh, directly familiar with. But I think you've got the same uh, thing going on in the UK in some places. I think those role models are very, very important in terms of encouraging people to do this experimentation. So I think it's important to try to use them uh, effectively in building up that entrepreneurial culture. Uh, two other points. One is about the role of immigration. There's a wonderful book by uh, Anna Lee Saxenian called the New Argonauts, which is all about the role of immigration in Silicon Valley. And she makes a very good case that Silicon Valley could not exist without immigration. You had a critically important role played by Indian immigrants, uh, Taiwanese immigrants, now Chinese, and of course, uh, Europeans uh, have been very, very important in making Silicon Valley what it is, and I think that's important when we think about the, uh, the, in the UK context as well. Uh, Obviously, attracting talent is uh, critical. The more talent you can attract, the better off you're going to uh, be. And finally, I want to leave you with one last uh, concept. Maybe it's a a buzzword, if you will. Uh, That's an idea uh, I coined uh, a few years ago called micro-multinationals. And the idea with uh, micro-multinationals is that even the smallest company today now has access to a computing and communications infrastructure that the largest multinationals couldn't afford uh, 15 years ago. And most of it is free. So there are these micro-multinationals all over the Bay Area. If you go uh, to Soma, south of Market Street, which is a boom uh, area these days, you'll find many companies with a dozen employees, and maybe eight of them or ten of them are here in San Francisco, and there'll be three or four in Europe or in Asia. And these uh, groups can communicate using email, using video conferencing, using Skype, using Google Docs, using all of this communications infrastructure that just simply wasn't affordable by anyone uh, 15 years ago. So nowadays, if you're starting a company and you know the perfect person for a role, but they live 9,000 miles away, Well, that's not a problem anymore. And in many cases, these connections were formed in schools. You went to school with someone, you trust them, you have an ongoing uh, relationship, you have an understanding your friends, and and that trust is uh, very important in how things are, uh, you know, how you work with these people. You can have them working with you in your organization Uh, in a way that just was not uh, feasible before. And I think this is also a case where the UK has a big uh, advantage that you've been educating the world for uh, decades, and I know a lot of uh, connections have been formed, and taking advantage of the computing and communication infrastructure to leverage those uh, UK-educated knowledge workers could be I think, a very uh, important asset for what you're uh, doing. I think the UK can really be a leader uh, in that uh, type of, uh, of innovation. So that's my talk. I hope I haven't gone too much over. No, it's uh, are thank, thank, thank you, you for very, your attention.
0: Thank you very much indeed. We'll go straight on. We'll do back to back. And then uh, the panel will uh, throw questions, starting up with Tim and Vivian. Uh, and then we'll have a general discussion. So it's now John.
3: Okay, well, uh, thanks very much, Hal, and I think what I'm going to say is uh, congruent with all the things that you were saying. Um, So uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, some of the work that I've been doing alongside lots of colleagues, uh, Nick Bloom in particular, on looking at management practices uh, across different countries and within different countries. So uh, the reason we started doing this work was that um, management is one of those areas which is much talked about but uh, of an area which economists have always been very sceptical about. So people often uh, poke fun at managers. So lots of, I put a slide up here, lots of TV shows and movies about um, horrible bosses and horrible managers. I often say that one of the things that the UK is very good at doing is uh, exporting TV shows about horrible bosses. And there's a few examples here from the retail and manufacturing sector. um, But, you know, economists have been sceptical about this, mainly, I think, due to the lack of kind of hard evidence um, on the role of managers and management. Now, I'm going to argue in the next 15 minutes that um, we made some progress on thinking about this over the last uh, 10 years or so. In particular, some of our work has been joint with uh, McKinsey uh, in trying to think about this. And I'm going to draw on that work and also the information we've got from the uh, huge explosion of empirical work on firms and plants, demonstrating very large differences in productivity across firms and and argue that a lot of this is related to to management practice. Tim Besley was pressing me uh, on how much management could account for in terms of uh, well-being, uh, material well-being across countries, and I was very resistant to say this. So, (laughs) nevertheless, if you you run a uh, kind of uh, regression... Uh, of uh, GDP per capita against our measure of management practice, you can you can account for something like 70 uh, or 80 percent of the variance if you correct for measurement error. So, I don't know, take that <laughs> as you will. But uh, I guess the uh, potentially a large amount of the differences of the wealth of nations could be uh, due to management. What drives management practices? Uh, Ian's going to talk a lot about these. I'm going to show you there's some systematic factors which uh, do seem to be important in explaining management, in competition, the role of uh, family firms and uh, how you appoint CEOs, skills, foreign investments and so on. And finally, I want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the policy implications, which I think come in two forms. One is you could think of this as structural changes. So the things that I think that we focused on, or I focused on in my work to look, to look at... Uh, things about the, say, the system of competition, the system of tax, the system of regulations and so on, but also speculate a bit on more sort of management-specific interventions around the role of information in particular. So that's, uh, this is the kind of outline of the talk, uh, so let me just get straight into it. Um, I think the, one, of, one of the things that we found um, in economics over the last decade or so from the opening up of national statistical offices, and also from the kind of innovations in IT that Hal talked about is that there is an enormous amount of productivity and performance differences between firms and plants uh, within countries even in relatively narrowly defined industries so in the US for example which you might think is one of the more uh, flexible uh, and competitive markets in the world the typical four-digit industries this is a kind of narrowly defined industry like clothing for men and boys that would be a four-digit industry the difference between plants at the 90th and 10th percentiles of the productivity distribution is a factor of four. And if you strip out things like capital, other kinds of things which you can observe to account for that, the residual productivity, so called total factor productivity, is about. Uh, a factor of two between the 90th and the 10th percentile of the productivity distribution. So that's a very big difference. And if you look at other countries like the UK or even more, in more you know, extreme cases like India, that difference is far wider. So very big differences across uh, firms and plants in terms of the productivity. These are not kind of transitory one-off shocks; They're persistent over time. You can see that if you look at the panel data. Um, it's not simply measurement error. So one of the things, of course, we worry about is that these differences might just be to do with different prices. Uh, John Holtwanger has a series of papers l- where he has access to plant specific prices and number of industries. In fact, the differences look even bigger when you when you take into account prices and other kinds of measurement problems. Um, we maybe shouldn't be surprised to see this. We see these huge differences of firm uh, performance, not just in terms of productivity, but also in terms of profit, size, and management quality, and so on. Um, I often give this to my grad students here at LSE, which is from uh, a paper in the QJ in, in '87 which, you know, basically states there's big, you know, profit differences across firms. And, of course, no grad student at LSE, unfortunately, reads the Courtly Journal of Economics in 87. That's the time that the dinosaurs wandered the earth, according to graduates. And I mentioned this was actually Francis Walker from 1887, the first edition of the QJ, in fact. Uh, Francis Walker being the first president of the American Economic Association. So this heterogeneity of firm performance is long recognised but hasn't really been able to be um, properly demonstrated until the last the last decade or so. Looking across countries now, so within countries, we see a mirror image of this in some sense. So if you look across countries, there's this huge variation of both per capita GDP, that's on the horizontal axis, and also in terms of total factor productivity, that's on the vertical axis. And there's you know, obviously a tight correlation between the two of those with you know, stunning differences. You know, Tanzania, Zambia having like a 32nd of the productivity of, of the United States, for example. Now, when you try and look at some of the reasons for this, a good fraction actually is related to firm dispersion. So there's, a, there's an interesting recent paper by uh, Pete Clano and Chang Cao, which have shown that if you look at one of the reasons for the differences of um, productivity between, say, the United States and India, it's not simply that every American firm is much more productive than every Indian firm. One of the big differences is that um, uh, the American economy has, is much more ruthless, if you like, at weeding out the less productive, less efficient firms. So in their work, something like if you can make the Indian economy in this kind of hypothetical world root out the less productive firms, allocate more more output to the more productive firms, this could raise Indian productivity by something like 40 or 50%. And so that, though, that reallocation, if you like, that force of creative destruction, which Howell's talking about, appears to be much weaker in some countries than other countries, and this could be a way in which the wealth of the nations could be improved. And it, you know, it's fundamentally related to the firm dispersion that I, I've talked about. So why do we see this huge firm dispersion, the productive dispersion? Well, the traditional view is it's to do with what you might call hard technologies, research and developments, ICT, patents, these are very important in understanding these differences of productivity across firms and countries. But in my view, the, these have been somewhat overstated uh, for two reasons. One, if you control for many of the observable measures of technology, there still remains a very big TFP residual. And secondly, if you look at the effects of the adoption of new technologies, the impact of these technologies themselves on performance is very heterogeneous and seems to depend a lot on the introduction of other complementary practices, such as management practices and changes of organization. So there's a substantial body of work being built up about the fact that just giving a firm more technology isn't the thing which is going to raise its productivity. You have to also change the way that the firm is organized. Um, And that's in a very resonant with what Hal was saying saying at Google. It's a combination of the management and organizational techniques with the opportunity that new hard technologies give. how do we know that management is important? Well, we have lots of case studies, but we also have some, some better data now. So let me talk about that data. Um, let me just mention, what you know, people often get very annoyed about talking about managerial best practices. There's a kind of three ways to think about this. One is that the styles of management have always been better. So in terms of thinking about promotion, you might think that it's uh, on average always going to be better to take into account ability or effort rather than just ignore that when you're promoting people or you promote promoting based on connections. Secondly, you could think about um, other types of management practices which weren't um, efficient before, but are now because the environment has changed. So if you think about performance-related pay or monitoring, it may have been too expensive or suboptimal to that in the past, but things have changed, like the advent of uh, SAP or other forms of information technology which make it much uh, more effective to monitor people's output. Thirdly, there's a type you might think of best practices in the sense of innovation. So uh, Hal talked about Kaizen, which uh, this idea of continuous improvement. This, this you know this idea, which came from the Toyota system of lean manufacturing, I think really was a kind of innovation in uh, in organizational or, or management. And we saw that just like any other technology, this took a long time to be diffused. It took uh, Britain and Detroit, you know, decades. Before some of these practices diffused around. But very much like a te- another te- any kind of hard technology like robotics or ICT, gradually it diffused around the world economy. So I think that's, uh, you know, all these three things are important when we think about what special what practice, practice is. How we ma- measured it? Well, um, there's three steps to try and get a handle on this. First of all, uh, we tried to develop a scorecard. For trying to measure different aspects of management, which we think are related to productivity, and these are 18 practices uh, around uh, three broad areas. One around kind of monitoring what goes on on the uh, on the on the shop floor or the or the, the processes which are going on within firms. Kind of use of data, how you build up systems to uh, encourage continuous improvements and the use of, of uh, better better monitoring. Secondly, on targeting, how you set your targets. They should be stretching but not impossible to meet. They should be joined up with financial and non-financial targets and thirdly and perhaps most importantly around people, around talent management and this is around how you promote people, how you pay people, the effort you put into hiring them, how you deal with underperformers and so on. So um, all these these different, I'm going to show you a couple of examples but if you're interested you can see this all up on the website, our various papers and lots of examples. And we implement this in various ways, but you know, uh, one way is through a kind of a telephone interview with a kind of plant manager. So the manufacturing sector, this will be in the kind of middle, in the middle of the organisation, not necessarily the CEO, who may be too removed from the shop floor, and not the kind of you know production line worker who has a you know, difficulty seeing the whole picture, but someone who's in the middle of the organisation. Now, even with the best possible uh, set of questions, how on earth can we get people to tell the truth? Well, we have two few tricks here. One is that the interviewers who are doing the interviews don't know about the company's performance. So that uh, reduces some of the bias. And secondly, the managers who respond are not informed that they're actually being scored. So uh, this um, passed the ethics committee uh, with a little bit of difficulty, but it comes under the category of necessary deception because uh, as you well know, there is a strong psychological bias when somebody asks you a question to give the answer that you think they want to hear. And in order to mitigate that, we, uh, you know, we ran this as a kind of double-blind survey. A lot of this was actually, uh, in the, the early years, run from this room we're sitting in, in fact, the uh, single site at the LSE, so we could give consistent training. Finally, how do people participate in the interview? Um, we get all our kind of performance data from other data sources. We get official endorsement from uh, reputable institutions like the Bank of England and the Bundesbank. We found that uh, different things work in different countries. In Germany, when they get the letter from the Bundesbank with the eagle crest of the Bundesbank, the Germans tend to respond very well. In the United States, any mention of uh, the government gets greeted by calls of you know, "communist" and "socialist," and the phone gets slammed down. So we found that the Americans responded much better to the idea that this was run by MBA students. We've employed over 100 MBA students on this uh, who, uh, who are actually have characteristics like being loud, assertive, uh, have all have business experience, which helps us get a good response. So we end up with you know something like a 45, 50% response rate. Uh, this is uncorrelated with the observable characteristics. So it appears to be quite, a, quite a, good, uh, a good survey. Okay, here's some of the questions. So one question, for example, is how is performance tracked? A bad score here, a low score one would be if uh, the business objectives, uh, the information being tracked, is not related at all to business objectives? Some processes aren't tracked at all. A high score would be where performance is tracked very frequently and communicated. So uh, you know, as Hal was saying, this is not just about the CEOs. This is about actually having information which is collected and communicated and used by people lower down in the organization in a way which is easy to understand and, and use as kind of visual management tools. So you know, we'd, uh, we'd ask open questions, and from those questions, we score those firms or across these different dimensions. And if uh, yeah, those of you are interested in the methodology, we can certainly get into that in more detail later on. Okay. Bottom line is we end up with about 8,000 firms in 21 countries across the world. Uh, we've run three major waves. We focused initially on manufacturing firms, so medium-sized manufacturing firms. will firm. have about 250 employees. Um, but we've actually now extended this across a range of sectors in hospitals, in the retail sector, schools, charities, other people extended it to the nursing homes, law firms. So it actually, the core of this is, is pretty transportable across sectors. And we have a... A wider range of ways of dealing with the measurement error, like having multiple interviews in the same firm, controlling for the interview of fixed effects, and so on we 're also running surveys um, across the whole size distribution in the u s with questions attached to the u s census uh, so we have in some countries sixty or seventy thousand firms and plants we 've looked at okay so what does the data look like well here 's the cross country distribution across our twenty one uh, countries you can see that this the this country ranking broadly mirrors the kind of productivity distribution across countries, the US being highest, there's a kind of Premier League of countries like Japan, Germany and Sweden. The UK is not doing too badly. We're kind of mid-range down there with, with the mid-European, middle European countries like Italy and France. Um, developing countries are towards the bottom of the distribution, as, uh, as, as you might expect. Now, although policymakers are always obsessed about this diagram, I think the more interesting diagram is the next one. So this looks at the distribution within every country of the management practice scores. And what you can see from here is just this incredible variation of management practices. So you know, a one, you know, firms are scoring between one and two are absolutely awful firms. I mean, they're, not, you know, they're promoting people irrespective of their effort or ability, not trying to find out on the performance, not monitoring what goes on with the firm, set, not setting any sensible ties. I wonder how these firms can even exist, but exist they actually do. And one clue as to why they exist, let me just focus on the U.K. and the U.S., for example. Uh, if you look at the U.S., you actually see very, very few of these firms. The U.S. is much more ruthless, as the, as the Cleno and, and uh, uh, Chang work suggests, at rooting out the, the less productive firms, whereas the U.K. Is, is not so good at that. We have a longer tail of relatively badly managed firms. Not as bad as, say, India, but certainly uh, much worse than the United States. This immediately suggests to you that you know, competition and creative destruction must be a key factor behind this. Okay, does any of this matter? Uh, is there an effect on performance? Again, Ian's going to talk a bit about this. Let me just mention, I think, the best evidence here on the causal effect of this some performance has been uh, some work on India, uh, looking at Indian textile firms, where we've actually run some randomised control trials, giving or treating a treatment group of firms with uh, intensive management consultancy over five months. Not for McKinsey. I have to add another reputable uh, firm. Uh, and uh, comparing this to a, a randomised control group, we got a very light consultancy, effectively just enough to get data off them. Uh, and then we collected weekly performance data on all these plants for the next two to three years. And what you saw was a dramatic improvement in the, in the management practices, but also in the productivity and profitability. So something on the order of $325,000 a year improvements uh, in profitability, uh, far in excess of the market rate of what this consultancy would have cost. So you know, you know, just to give you some idea of this, this is some, what some of the factories looked like before the intervention. Uh, very badly organised, old machines lying around, uh, oil leaking, very very little control over the quality of production. To so, um, afterwards, you know, big improvements in snag tagging, systematic monitoring of data to try and improve the the performance, a much more organised factory floor. Okay, so finally, let me. End on some causes and policy. What are the causes of difference in management quality? There's deep causes. Um, I think it's to do with information. You might not know how bad you are. A lot of these Indian firms, for example, had no idea how badly managed they were. And even if you do need to know how bad you are, you may not know how to improve yourself. That is, in some sense, sort of the role of, uh, of a consultancy interventions, other kinds of interventions. Even if you did have that information, many many firms that have the incentive to change themselves, that's where I, we focus most of our work. um, Obviously, things like competition are important here. And even if you have the incentives, collective action organization is a non-trivial task. So Ian's going to talk about something. Let me just mention something. Competition, I think, is absolutely critical here. So competition works both within firms by kind of giving them incentives to improve their management practices, but also between firms by this process of creative destruction, rooting out the underperforming firms, and allowing the more productive firms to grow. And we have, I think, more causal evidence on this by looking at things like the, um, the opening up of competition when China joined the World Trade Organization and in, in the UK, we uh-huh. have policy experiments in the public and private sectors to look at that. The second important thing is CEO selection how you select your senior managers and your CEO. So one of the f- strongest reasons why we have a tale of underperforming firms in many countries is that many of them are run by the second or third generation, typically the eldest son of the founder. And uh, you know, this t- is not, on average, a good way of selecting the most talented people to run firms. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence, not just Malware, but other firms, is how you select senior managers, especially CEOs matters a lot. And many other things we'll get into in in discussion, I'm sure, over human capital, over ownership, and and over regulation. So let me just end with some policy messages. And I I don't want to oversell this work. I think there is, you know, we have to much less work of management, say, in economics, uh, on this quantitative dimension on human capital and other aspects. But I think we have learned some important lessons. I think there's, structurally, competition is very important. In the UK, I'd really think about the planning system, which puts up barriers to entry. I think about ways of uh, we can strengthen the antitrust system. Trade is very important. We have a strong incentives here for family firms, the inheritance tax system, which I, I don't see no reason for that distorting tax. And there are a lot of things we could think about of fostering this reallocation that Hal talked about, uh, especially in terms of removing some barriers to exit that EU state aid has. Um, and how we think about SME policies. Directly in the public sector, this is one of the most badly managed areas that we, we, we see. I think there's lots of rooms for improvement um, through structural and also direct interventions. Um, I think if you thought more generally issues around benchmarking, the manufacturing advisory service, other advisory services, training and education, things which can actually help spread manual capacity. So I think in principle those things are very important. In practice we have almost we have, su- we have absolutely lousy evidence and evaluation of the effectiveness of these policies. So, a very low-cost thing would be to you know, evaluate them properly, and that would uh, give us a suggestion about whether to move money in. The way I would do this is to think about industrial policy, focus on areas or firms where we think we have comparative advantage, and there is global growth, and put our effort energies into those, especially our management. Again, we can talk about that in questions. So, finally. Um, Huge edge of energy productivity across firms and countries. I think this is linked to management quality. Uh, competition is one of the main factors. I think there's many other factors, um, especially selection of CEOs, which influence uh, influence management practices. And there's a wider range of potential interventions. Big prize on the table. Let me just, uh, as uh, for my more research-minded uh, brethren, let me just say that one of the great things about doing this research is you do the radical thing for economists, which is to talk to people and uh, you learn interesting things about uh, people when you talk to them. One is of course the chat-up line. So Andre Schleif, whenever he hears this, always says, you know, I try to distract people by talking about sex, so here it comes. Here's the British chat-up line. This was a male manager speaking to Australian female interviewer. Your accent is really cute and I love the way you talk. Do you fancy meeting up near the factory? Of course, what girl could resist? Our interviewer did resist. I washing my hair every night for the next month. <laughs> I've heard that line many times myself. Things are different in India, of course. In India, um, so in India, as, as you know, the Brahmins are the high, high, highest caste people, and this was an uh, interview as a Brahmin. Um, production manager, are you a Brahmin? Yes, why do you ask? Are you married? No, excellent, excellent. My son is looking for a bride. I think he could be perfect. I must contact your parents to discuss this. So, culture matters. Thank you very much. Thank you very much
4: indeed, John. Um, uh, Well, thank you, Richard. And uh, I'd like to build on, John, not on chat-up lines, but more on uh, management. I'd just like to make uh, three propositions. i focus very much on the micromanagement. One is I'd like to reaffirm what how, and John have said in different ways, that management really does matter. I'm not convinced it's 70%, but it's certainly uh, over 20% in terms of productivity, and, and probably more than that. And if I have a plea to the economists, World well, that they spend more time on this <coughs> aspect rather than uh, footling mathematical models, to do not change anything in my, my um, head. <laughs> the second thing I'd like to uh, talk about is what drives good management. Um, it's one thing to talk about it, and some of these can only be done at the firm level, but what actually drives management. I'd like to focus on those issues that maybe can be influenced by government policy. A lot has to be done by the firm, uh, but some things can be influenced by government. And then finally, I'd like to conclude with some implications and initiatives that maybe uh, UK government and managers could actually take to push the uh, managerial agenda uh, forward. Let me just start off with reiterating what Hal and John have said in their different ways. Uh, Just look at the left-hand chart. There is uh, evidence uh, that if the management score improves, look at the left-hand bit on TFP, by one over the average, the total factor productivity goes up. <coughs> this is the aggregate level, and if you do it at the micro level as well. So uh, a, a lot of evidence, by the way, this is based on the same research as John, which was, much, which was done with McKinsey. There have been a number of micro studies in countries which uh, affirm the same thing. Some are between five and 20% according to countries, which can only be explained by management practice. Uh, this is not an Anglo-Saxon thing. You don't have to be Google or a British company. Some people say, ah, oh, yes, that's all very well. Um, this study was done internationally. And if you aggregate some countries, top left, US and UK, Anglo-Saxons, I'm not sure it's wise to aggregate China and Japan on the uh, top right, uh, anymore more to the bottom. But these, uh, these findings are more or less consistent across countries, which suggests that management is, is not a culturally specific uh, 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 topic. Um, uh, we see the charts on the US and the Germany consistently on management, but it's true across all different types of cultures, slightly different shapes of the curve, but this is not a, a culturally specific driven thing, which is important when people say, ah, oh, yes, but it's different in our industry, it's different in our country. The answer is, it's not. It's not that uh, different. And it's also true within industries. That management and productivity don't just work across industries and across countries, they work within industries. This is an example from the hospital sector. It's very important not to focus too much on manufacturing in these studies. Most uh, politicians obsess about manufacturing and industry. It's typically 15% of GDP in most countries, it's in hospitals. And uh, management practice in hospitals within uh, this is the UK and US, we have data now which I don't have but in India which says the same thing, that you can get huge uh, increase in productivity both in terms of outcome, in this case mortality rates, uh, economics income bed uh, and also patient satisfaction. It's very important you define productivity by the way in relevant measures, that's a whole PhD thesis in its so, own right, what is output in productivity is a very very complicated topic. The point I just want to make is that the over importance of management in terms of uh, performance within, industry, within industries, within countries and across countries cannot be overstated, and it's probably the single big, biggest factor. Uh, I just want to remind everybody that productivity is linked to incomes and to growth. This is the Growth Commission, and productivity is an absolute driver of growth. You have to believe that uh, over uh, time. So that, that's the point about just re-emphasizing the importance of uh, productivity and the role of management, is it? What actually drives uh, good management uh, uh, practice where you're talking about it? And what is management? Um, it's a hugely broad topic. I would just say that there are three surrogate measures of management which seem to be most correlated. You, I can't be certain that causation and correlation here are right. Um, clearly, innovation and efficiency are what drive performance. But the three management practices that have the highest correlation, John will know this, are talent management, Putting the right people with the right skills and the right roles in the right culture, that's what I mean by talent management, is number one. Number two is what we call performance management, which is clear measurable performance targets with appropriate incentives and consequences and and establishing a performance culture around that. And the third is what we call lean production or service delivery management, which is basically around efficiency of operation that focuses on quality, timeliness uh, and elimination of waste. So if you had to pick three processes, because management is rather a vague, loosey goosey word, mean anyway, those would be the three that have the highest correlation. If you look at things like strategy and finance and marketing, the correlation is not so good. And anyway, they are highly correlated, those three. So if you're looking for very strong how how to talk about process management, all managers understand talent management, performance management, and lean production efficiency. Those are the ones to focus on rather than get stuck on corporate finance and functional skills. Quite an interesting finding. Uh, in particular, all companies are good at talent management are practically always good at organizational development and strategy. And it makes sense. Those that have worked in good companies, you just find that they do that. So when we talk about management, if you're looking for a short time that makes it real, talent management, performance management, and lean production. Now, what drives Uh, uh, good management practice and how might governments be able to play a role over and above the the things that only companies should do, I I believe on the whole the primary responsibility is organisations not just in the private sector by the way, this is equally true for uh, the public sector and increasingly by the way John, we've just done this in the social sector as well, very, very poorly managed sector of the economy everywhere in the world at 8% of GDP Uh, so this is, uh, my thesis is meant to be for the private and the public sector and the social sector too the first one is that having a very, very uh, the stronger concentration you have of demanding customers cannot be underestimated. A big factor out of the research done by the Adessey and McKinsey and John's work, and indeed others, suggests that very demanding customers is a critical factor uh, of this. Um, one example of uh, demanding customers and the best companies and multinationals, uh, the, the companies that people love to hate socially. Um, they are not always uh, they're not popular but on the other hand that there's a strong evidence almost across the world that in, wherever you go that the multinationals in that country have a better productivity and management score than the domestic companies and um, it makes sense if you think about it if you have to expose yourself to international composition uh, competition and you're competing internationally you're immediately picking up uh, best uh, practice i mean I don't know how if you so on, you might want to talk about Google's international operations as well, how you get it beyond the valley. But you typically pick up ideas, learn competition ways, you naturally pick up techniques, example, and that's confirmed. So having uh, a, a strong MNE uh, presence uh, is an example, or companies that uh, treat internationally. If you want an obvious example from the UK, the automotive industry was flat on its back in the 1970s, it's now an extremely buoyant sector, and I think most people would say the role of the Japanese and MEs in redriving that and becoming very demanding customers and producers I'll do that. I would argue the same in Germany, by the way, in industrial high tech. So, very, very um, strong uh, uh, customer base. This might be an interesting thing to talk about on industrial policy. Um, and again, if you want pres- presence on that, if you look at the share of multinationals in the country and the relation to management, <coughs> management practice score, which is what John uh, presented, there appears to be a reasonably high correlation. I'm normally rather suspicious of correlation occurs, but I think there's enough there that says that the more high quality MNEs you have in a country, the higher the management practice is and certainly the higher the overall productivity is. If we looked at uh, uh, Sweden, Germany and the US up there, they came out as very high. So there does seem to be a presence. I'm using multinationals as a surrogate for demanding uh, customers, really focusing on that. And that's very, very important in Europe, where government is one of the biggest components of the economy. Most people would not say it's a very demanding uh, customer. I'll come on to that as well. The the second uh, uh, driver of uh, good management practice is skills. Um, I'll start with the obvious point that there is an obvious correlation, you know, just Common sense for telling between education and performance. It is true. Um, uh, according to this survey, the same survey, there's a lot of work being done on uh, educational skills and performance, not just in management, by the way. It's uh, one of the reasons that people are driving tertiary education over. What uh, also comes out, I don't have a chart on this, is that it's a strong correlation, and we can't be certain it's causation, strong correlation between the best managed organizations, they have a high concentration of business education as well. Very unglamorous conclusion in a country uh, like uh, the UK or France where people typically sneer at MBAs or business education. The correlation is quite high. And if you go to the US where MBAs uh, typically, often, I'm not talking just about Harvard and Stanford and huge expensive people who do nighttime uh, MBAs or do on the job MBAs, executive education, it's a very high correlation between the presence of executive Education and MBAs in an organization and their productivity. Now, whether it's a direct link or if you've got the gumption and the energy to do an MBA in the evening or do exec ed, you're motivated. And it's quite difficult to get that direct relation. But there's enough evidence to suggest that really encouraging uh, business education, having people, particularly at middle management uh, levels, and again, don't just think Harvard MBA, you know, the very high-end stuff, really getting people trained in business technique. And a lot of MBA is about technique. It's not about high-polluting concepts. That appears to have a, a big impact. Uh, A third one, which I won't uh, put on a slide, is testing internationally. Uh, The UK government is already, uh, and I I think very encouraging, trying to encourage exports. Uh, But there is a lot of evidence from the data that John presented that those companies that export and test themselves internationally, this is the the mini-multinational that Hal talked about, if you like, tend to have much higher productivity levels. And so the more domestic you are, the less likely you are to have a high management score and the less productive you're likely to be. Again, it makes intuitive sense then. And I think encouraging domestic com- uh, companies in any country to be export-oriented provides a sort of data. If you like, I think you said it provides extra competition as well. There's a very strong correlation between competing internationally, management practice, and hence management productivity. And then linked to that is the importance of benchmarking having good data on how you do. This is a chart you could do for any uh, profession in the world that when you ask people how they are doing, if they don't have benchmark data, in management as in everything else, I'm sure it's true even of academics and uh, even of politicians. So the everybody thinks that they are above average. It is it's a common psychological uh, a phenomenon. Benchmarking data can have a massive correction on that. And my guess is that the chart that John showed, which I think is a very interesting chart about the dispersion within countries, that if the one to threes are new, you, you can either deal with uh, misassessment by going bust or out of business, or you can give people data that helps them assess how they're doing. And benchmarking uh, data, we, in our view, is a very, very important driver of good management practice. And I would say anecdotally, my observation of well run uh, companies, whether they're small companies or large companies, are always looking to compare themselves with others. And to say we are good in absolute <coughs> doesn't mean anything. Are you good relative to somebody else? And so collecting systematically benchmark data through trips, through data, benchmarking be done qualitatively or quantitatively, but having a mindset of comparing and testing yourselves internationally is very, very important. So, uh, just in, in conclusion, i I reasserted what uh, John and Howell said is that management really does make a difference to productivity and growth. I try to estimate some drivers about which things can be done, not just by the company itself. And what might those things be? Well, it just follows off on from um, uh, 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 what I've actually said. The first is that governments should do all they can to encourage trade demanding customers and so get high quality MNEs. in. Switzerland is the great example, Switzerland's the second poorest country in Europe. Uh, 70 years ago, I think anyone who's been to Switzerland now would know, how can you explain it? Well, there's one aspect is the war and, uh, uh, and money, but the other is the ability to attract multinationals that's had a huge productivity impact now, so all you can to uh, create uh, uh, demanding uh, customers. The second is to focus on the skills agenda, um, I don't want to get into education and all that and apprenticeships, I support that uh, push but this is very unfashionable, but I would, I, I would absolutely do, we can, to incentivize executive education, uh, the acquisition of MBAs, because it has a direct productivity impact. This isn't our education so much as a productivity uh, tool, uh, and uh, it surprises me and saddens me that people are so cynical in this country about MBAs that all the evidence suggests they shouldn't be any practical person would say if you picked up those technical skills and not just the gobbledygook, which, um, people sometimes need to talk about between a small part of most uh, management educations, it would be good. It would be good. So maybe state scholarships, maybe subsidized rates. Um, I think companies should play a part in this as well, by the way. But really encouraging uh, management skills in the same way as people do um, technical skills, such as electronics and IT, I think management should be up there. Remember that a lot of management is technique. A lot of management is technique not gobbledygook, it's actual technique which can be drawn. Third area, uh, just say, is testing internationally. Um, again, I, I think what the UK government and others are doing to encourage people to export, the UK's performance on exports is relatively very poor, actually, um, and disappointing. There's been some very interesting data come out recently that the export performance of the UK companies uh, in services and in the manufacturing has been disappointing. So anything to encourage people to get out there, and there's some evidence of this link to a lack of M&E's um, I pick up uh, Hal's point about business hubs again there is uh, quite a lot of evidence that com- competition international framework benchmarking is made easier benchmarking is easy I would imagine in Silicon Valley how benchmarking is quite easy just walk down the road and talk to everyone uh, I'm just uh, guessing that's a form of benchmarking that's what I mean to Silicon Valley a lot that's what they're doing all the time they're testing both innovation, creativity, and how they do things, and I completely open there. Um, the London has, uh, London has a city, UK has the city of London, which has a, been a fantastically <coughs> successful hub, the whole banking hub has been successful. Not too many people talk about Cambridge, well, maybe, but uh, I, re- I think really encouraging that. And then my final point is perhaps, you know, particularly on policy, is that government is a demanding customer. In most of the UK, government is anywhere between 30 and 60% of GDP, you'll never get to where you need to be on productivity and growth if you exclude the public sector from this. Now again, I think people are are focusing on this, but if uh, government perhaps could think about itself as a demanding customer, which means it needs to have very, very high skills on purchasing and commissioning and how you attract them and pay people to do that, it's another saga. But the productivity benefit of that, and I think Singapore and Sweden have really, really shown the way on this, you know, about how they make themselves into a more demanding and yet reasonable customer, not just bullying for lower costs. which is not being a demanding customer, it's being a bullying customer, really has a huge uh, productivity uh, impact. So I, I will stop there, I hope I've um, at least reinforced John's point of view that management really does matter. I hope that some of the drivers of management have come out of it, and I've just tried to highlight some possible implications of policy. Well thank
0: you very much indeed, and thanks too to Al and John. Um, I think three great presentations, actually they all fit really well together, and uh, what we've learned is that management matters, and we've begun to learn how corporates and governments uh, can start to make a difference here. What we'll do now is we'll just, uh, we'll do a sweep of questions from the, from this side of the, the, the table, we'll just throw them at whoever wants to pick them up. Um, those will respond then, and we'll be, uh, be able to join the discussion. So why don't
5: you pick up? The, okay, very good. Let me reiterate, uh, just comment that these are three great presentations covering a, a lot of ground and the one thing I can come away with no doubt is this important issue I guess where I'm less clear and where I want to push you now is exactly what the concrete implications are for, uh, for policy because after all there's a growth commission I think where we have to try and come down and actually i'd like to if, if I may begin with, with Hal because I think the one thing that's clear if you look at the us i don't see any government interventions that are promoting quality management from this side of the Atlantic, if the U.S. at the top of the ladder, have they gotten there just through market forces, or is this something where you would say there are very clear-cut examples of government interventions that put the U.S. at the highest point on the chart in everything that we saw? Right
0: Do you want to answer that uh, straight off, Hal? Uh-huh?
1: Well, well, I'll take a stab at it. I mean, one might argue that the uh One of the the features that's enabled this increased productivity is the government non-intervention. That is, the government has played a somewhat uh, uh, looser hand in terms of the regulatory environment. And I think particularly these uh, examples I mentioned earlier about the ease of entry, the ease of exit, the importance of trimming off that uh, bottom tail of uh, inefficient firms, Several years ago, one of my students, Lily Lu, did a thesis studying tariff reform in Chile, and she found that there was, because of this particular tariff reform, there was a huge turnover. The inefficient firms definitely tended to exit, but the firms that entered were basically drawn from the same distribution as the incumbents. Some of them were efficient, some were inefficient. So the whole change in industrial structure in that case fit a Darwinian model, namely it wasn't that the mutations were necessarily beneficial, uh, it's just that you were able to weed out the ones that were inefficient relatively quickly. So I think that's a a key point uh, that several of us uh, have alluded to, namely this ease of exit that you do need to be able to get uh, inefficient firms out because of the tremendous variation in productivity that John referred to, that's a place where policy can help increase overall productivity. Okay, but I got the sense Ian was thinking of a
5: more proactive subsidizing MBAs even, which the U.S., as far as I know, has never subsidized MBAs.
4: Well, I, I don't like the idea of subsidizing anything, but I think in the the U.S. has more of a management education culture than any other uh, country. They haven't needed to subsidize it, I think, because people have found it. And I just think in Europe and the U.K., you might need a little bit of a kickstart to get that in place by forms of... People talk about STEM for science and technology and engineering. And by the way, we don't find a correlation from the data between engineering and science skills and management uh, practice. I just think maybe just... A, kickstart some intervention but ideally if it, if it leads to better performance of product then you wouldn't need to subsidise it because it should be self-reinforcing other than in the public sector
5: but I worry somewhat firms don't demand people's whole and that's the reason it's the demand side not a supply side okay. that's, let's go down Francesco and Rachel and then the panel can pick up whatever they like Actually, my my first question is exactly on this last point. Um, So we've been talking about about
6: things that the government does that get in the way of uh, entry uh, and the growth and so on. Uh, But but we also talked about uh, this emphasis on management practices, skills, and knowledge. And I'm, I'm wondering whether there is a potential role for growth policies in the selection process. Of firms, uh, are there ways, more or less heavy-handed, through which the government can uh, encourage, uh, perhaps even force, uh, firms to be more transparent, uh, and more meritocratic in their choice of uh, uh, top management? And particularly think about here the family firms, uh, which are, uh, you know, I agree very much with John. Uh, one potential problem in the UK and in other European countries. Rachel, so, sorry. No. No, just, just things like, uh, you know, asking firms, for example, to, to publicly explain their uh, their uh, uh, choices of top management uh, or things like that, or that, that too, too heavy-handed. Okay, um,
7: on a slightly different tack, since you've been pressed to do the link between policy and your measures of management, could you just say a bit more about the public sector and how that compares with <coughs> the findings that you got from the...
3: Private sector, how far there are different themes that emerge from the public sector? How far is actually the same thing in different guise? Shall I kick off? Um, So, in terms of the, I mean, I I, I agree. I mean, the question Tim asked, the question I I, I asked myself (laughs) a lot as well, because, uh, you know, the, the, the approach that we've taken really has been more to understand the importance of management rather than to say, okay, well, what are the policy leaders want um, to pull to, to drive this thing up? Although that is the question that I have to do as a growth commissioner. So I, I usually think of this in a couple of ways. So one is I think that there are um, kind of structural policies which um, can help improve management practices along the lines we've, we've been discussing. So in particular, you know, the, the kind of smoothing the process of reallocation and creative destruction is, is very important. And you know, that's not just removing government completely from the process. Sometimes if you think about, say, antitrust policy, that's about thinking of the ways in which government can enforce the competitive arena. And, you know, U- European Union state aid policy, for example, is precisely on this you know, in terms of uh, governance of mergers and acquisitions, the role of uh, barriers to exit from state aid, and so on. So, I think that 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 whole thing is very important. In terms of what's different in the US, um, you know, family family firms are one thing which are very different, and I think that um, is related to kind of you know perhaps long-standing cultural things. Like many of the founding fathers were actually not the elder sons because the elder sons got to keep the land, and were actually uh, the the kind of second or third elder sons who had to leave because uh, things are much worse for them. So I think the whole tradition in the U.S. is, is rather different. But there are tax differences as well. So if you look at it, there is this work which we know that uh, means that um, there is evidence that inheritance, inheritance tax makes a difference for whether or not the uh, the, the firm goes down in the family line or not, and that's something that's open for potential reform. At the state and county level, I think there may be more intervention. I mean, this I didn't know enough about, but my impression is there are more kind of interventions that are made at a more local, decentralized level to build up managerial capability i'm not we, that would be one thing as a commission we could maybe look at more into in, in the u.s um i think on, on Franche- Francesco's point more widely on this issue of interventions to increase transparency i think there's a broad point about information and management so as uh, ian showed i think one of the th- one of the things about why you get poor management is an informational constraint not knowing not being able to know how good or bad you are that's the benchmarking issue at no not knowing what to do um, even when you know that you're bad so part of that is maybe improving transparency there's always a role for government information provision um, especially for small and medium-sized enterprises, especially in certain industries there may be roles for some type of uh, subsidized information acquisition maybe the training issue of special management capabilities. My view, in fact, is that we should set up loads of experiments on these later and actually see which ones work and which ones don't. I think these are, you know, we could do lots of these type of things. We do them actually, a lot, like the manufacturing advisory service, but we don't actually evaluate them properly, in my view, to figure out whether or not they work. So I think there's a huge role for that. And on Rachel's question on the public sector, um, you know, here's the findings as far as I read them. If you look um, across privately owned versus publicly owned firms in manufacturing, you know, <laughs> publicly owned firms, unsurprisingly, perform a lot worse. And if you that brought the management quality is broadly true within the hospital sector and also within the school sector, and of course, huge differences between those type of hospitals and so on. So we, it's hard to push that very far. Um, my for, from the analysis that we've done, say in hospitals one of the things which has improved the functioning of public hospitals within the public sector is uh, allowing some degree of competition so the patient choice reforms um, we have some other evidence by looking what happens when you quasi exogenously add hospitals using kind of political changes and there you see amongst the public hospital sector big improvements in management quality big improvements in survivor rates in the hospital when you improve competition. So I would say that there is an important role still in the public sector for intelligently designed competitive reforms to improve reallocation, to improve incentives and management in, in the public sector in the UK. Uh,
0: just a quick question for me, if I may pass to Hal. Should we be discussing access to finance at all? Um, one of the perhaps big differences between uh, California California, the United Kingdom, is that here there's a much narrower range of choices uh, for finance. It's two or three very large banks. There's not much competition, and there's not anything like the um, the uh, VC firepower here. I mean, how important is that in your judgment?
1: Well, I think it is important. Unfortunately, I don't really have good ideas about how it can be replicated. If you look at the venture capital Uh, system in California it's really a self-sustaining feedback mechanism you have the successful entrepreneurs and what do they want to do they want to go out and prove that they can do it again and so they become angel investors and venture capitalists and all of these uh, uh, roles to develop the next generation now it's great when you've got that cycle going but uh, it, obviously, it takes decades to create such a cycle. So um, uh, I see it in action. I'm not sure how to replicate it elsewhere. Should we um, throw it open now to colleagues? Um... Thanks very much, first of all, for a great presentation. So I had sort of one comment or a plea, and then two
2: questions relating to sectors. The, the plea is that if more work could be done around causality, I think that would be enormously important. For actually, what you do about it, the policy implications depend critically on whether or not there is causality, um, or the kind of scale of policy intervention you might want to go for. In particular, in the kind of case of the national or exports or whatever. Um, my question is around kind of granularity around sectors, and it's two different kind of angles to it. One. John, you mentioned um, performance management and time pay to output, but measuring output in certain sectors will be possible and counterproductive. I thought the latest analysis <coughs> that was actually that paying for performance in knowledge-based industries is in fact going to reduce innovation and creativity and ultimately productivity. And then on the antitrust side, yes, great, sounds brilliant that we try and get systems going to weed out these sort of a tale of poor performance, but do we know anything about the sectors in which they exist, that kind of tale of poor management practice, and is it really antitrust policy or something more targeted and focused that's going to get that dynamic in the market
0: going? Thank you. Who would like to take those uh, up
3: I mean, very, very quickly, I can can respond to all of your views as well. Um, You know, causality, I I completely agree. I mean, again, I'd reiterate my offset view, offset view, offset offset view. But, um, you know, we've been arguing for a long time that there should be more, um, you know, randomised control trial evidence on these type of policies, um, which I completely believe is the gold standard in finding evidence here. And governments have been very reluctant to, to do that. Um, I hope uh, you know, continued interaction between academics and, and policymakers improves that, that, that state of knowledge. Um, you know, like measurement is always hard. You know, I, don't, I think that's, that, that's a challenge. But people, I think you know, in, in any industry, there is usually an attempt to try and measure performance to some degree. And um, you know, I think that that is, is part of any good performance management system. And I completely agree with need greater granularity. I mean, one example would be um, thinking about um, planning in the retail sector, for example. So I, I think there's evidence that uh, the planning system, we had this in the previous session, has led to uh, protection of many uh, inefficient incumbents in the parts of the retail sector. and uh, rad- More radical reform of the planning system could actually help improve the productivity in that sector.
8: Any more questions from uh, Agir? It's really for John. Uh, When you looked at the varieties of capitalism idea, when you were looking at comparisons between the different countries, it seems to me that if you take the fact that Germany and USA are always very high on the list of very productive organisations, this may be because each is an arch exponent of a particular variety of capitalism. They're either very, very good at uh, liberal markets or very, very good at coordinated market economies. Whereas in the UK, we're kind of a little bit of each. We don't really know where we stand. We kind of move between them according to the political situation we find ourselves in. So that made, in my way of thinking anyway, be one reason the for that. The second good reason, I think, for looking at some of those theories is they each have uh, a number of interesting things to say about, about the management processes which take place if you look at those theories, and that includes. Thank you. That includes uh, the uh, varieties of capitalism, and indeed, it also includes uh, resource-based view or uh, institutional theory, and so on. All of which look at the processes that go on inside organisations to relate that back into the uh, the broader societal generalisation. The final point really was looking at um, continuing this theme about really knowing what you're doing. One of the differences I've always found in looking at Japanese management, which I did about uh, 15 years ago in the UK, was that the Japanese firms never had anything very special, very different in their management practices. Their main difference was that they were absolutely disciplined about what they did. So timekeeping was 100%. Nobody, there was no absenteeism. <coughs> absenteeism did not exist. It wasn't allowed. But that didn't mean to say there was anything you know, very sophisticated, but just that everybody believed in the system everybody subscribed to it, and everybody made it work. And that seems to me one of the problems we've also got in other parts of our, our industries uh, is that we don't always do what we're supposed to do in the way of management practices.
4: Thank
3: you. That's it. Thank you. Let, let, me, let me answer the following way. So people, I, I often get a pushback from a lot of our work by saying that you are very crude people. You simply there's one golden bullet, good management, bad management, whereas in reality, just as you say, you know there are, there are varieties of of, uh, of managerial styles, and you know some countries will specialise in something or others. In a micro level, it's of course you might be the, the, the Chicago view of the world would be everybody's optimising, and some people are rationally choosing one type of management. Others no good sense of being good or bad. In the management literature, this this is there's a the fact that this is a paradigm actually <laughs> called by Woodward itself. This 1958 the contingent management school, so. Our view, and colleagues, you know, people can take different different perspectives on this, is that um, there is definitely a variety of capitalism flavors. So, if, for example, if you look at um, people, there's people talent management, the kind of emphasis on, you know, how you reward people, dealing with other and so on. Um, relative to the more monitoring side of things, how you uh, use data, monitor the production line, deal with systems and structures that, for example, you know, Japan is worse in some sense on the people management and much stronger on the kind of monitoring and performance management side of things. So the UK and the US are more strong on the people management side and weaker on those side of things. And Germany in particular is very good at you know, incremental changes and you know, the manufacturing and so on. So there is that specialisation which definitely takes place and you know there should be more work understanding the pros and cons of that. But well, I've always been struck, and I wasn't expecting this when I went into this work, you look across all, say, our 18 measures, that there is a, within firms, there's a very strong correlation. Firms which are good at one tend to be good, as, as Ian would say, across the board. And, you know, although there is some specialisation, you know, that the people, the, the, the high human capital industry specialise more than people, my own for example, that definitely exists. The first order thing is just this, I guess you could call it the kind of TFP <laughs> difference, sort or of the efficiency differences, that there are some that just seem to be good ac- across a whole range of things. So, I mean, I think both things are happening. On the one level, there really are these, what well, I would think of genuine differences and performance levels, TFP levels across across countries, and that's what I've kind of focused on. But within that, there, are, there is something of specialisation. It may well be that the UK needs to think about where it <laughs> specialises a bit more um, in terms of management that it gets it's matched with.
1: By the way, I had a thought about your earlier question. Uh, your earlier question is, what should the policy response be? And I suggested, well, maybe it should be relaxing some existing policies. Uh, so so which policies are those? Well, I don't know the answer, but we could take a, a page from John Van Rieden's book and say, well, let's ask them. Uh, maybe you could run a survey of a small, medium-sized enterprise, say, what are the uh, regulatory problems that you think are the most significant. Is it work rules, is it accounting, is it finance, is it taxes? And This could be done either by the kinds of uh, focus groups that John referred to, or uh, if you don't have time for that, just uh, put a call in the Financial Times or the Economist and uh, try to get people to put a volunteer some, uh, some views on this.
4: I'd just like to follow up on the, the culture point. My interpretation of the uh, data from the study that John was talking about is that the cultural differences aren't so much geographically um, specific as you might think. So if you look at Japan, for example, if you look at their automotive and advanced materials sector, extremely productive, and yet retail, where absenteeism is zero and people turn out at the same time, it's very low productivity compared to other countries. So to, to me, a lot of the culture is industry or company specific. Uh, rather than nationality specific. Same in Germany, by the way, has a low productivity public sector, and services is not very strong. So there are far more differences. And I think John had that very interesting chart about this dispersion within countries and uh, across. And uh, so I'd be careful about doing it. And secondly, when we do have management technique, there's no substitution. These management techniques are very complicated, and lean is a very simple concept. Applying it is very hard. Uh, culturally, it's not difficult intellectually, for example. So, I don't want to confuse management practice with sophistication, it's often disciplinary discipline. But Japan is a very interesting contrast, it has some of the most low productivity industries in the world and some of the highest at the yeah. same yes, time. Really uh, Jeffrey, yeah. um, I just have two, I
9: had two thoughts. Um, one, I don't know if this is interesting or not, but I, I, I'm interested in the process by which well-managed firms become badly managed firms. And is there any is there any thing to be looked at there? Why did General Mo, Why was General Motors, who in the Peter when Peter Drucker wrote about, them was the uh, best managed big company in the world, was became one of the worst com, managed companies in the um, I don't know 70s, 80s, and 90s. Why has Sony, uh, which was admired so heavily, become so, now? Okay, these are just anecdotes, and they're full, perhaps not um, not uh, acceptable. But I think I think it's an interesting an interesting phenomenon. The second thing, and perhaps more to reinforce what's been said, I, I, I wonder whether sometimes too much emphasis is placed on management and not enough on institutions and policies. Why is it that the British? have been, until recently at any rate, um, maybe still uh, quite good at pharmaceuticals, but no good at machine tools. Um, That has to do, I think, with institutions and policies which prevail in particular countries. And I think these inter-industry differences, why are the Germans good at making cars but not at biotechnology? It has a bearing on what you were saying earlier about varieties of capitalism. I think those institutional differences, institutional and policy differences between countries need need um, a lot of attention.
0: Mm-hmm. Who would like to um, respond to those two points? Um, what makes good companies bad and institutional uh, structures that make for successful or
4: I mean, it's a very interesting question about uh, why, uh, uh, why um, some industries like, like in the UK okay, but not, not, uh, not others. I, this is a speculation I, I don't know. I suspect if you follow the talent, you get the answer. And the UK has a very strong position in professional services, for example. Um, if you look at sub-sector in law, accountancy, uh, consultancy, very, very strong. And I don't know which is chicken and egg, but I would say, and, and, and it has a weak record in engineering and manufacturing. If you look at the number of graduate engineers and what they go and do, most of the systems in the UK have gone into banking, not into that. Uh, so I think if you follow the talent over 30 or 40 years, in Germany the best thing you can do is go into high-tech manufacturing and in Japan. Now, it may be chicken and egg, but I'm not sure it's institutions and policies as more the talent uh, flow. And whether that's a source of intervention or not, and dangerous stuff yeah, yeah. will be um, I and on the large successful companies, I would say it's competitiveness. I mean companies fail because they don't see the new innovators coming out. General Motors couldn't cope with the Japanese uh, uh, basically so why that happens I'll leap to hell
1: how does that to you um, Dave? well I, I think the story with GM uh, is is uh, we ended up in the US with a oligopoly the big three auto companies we uh, we had uh, sort of fat and happy operations without a lot of competition and uh, not very demanding consumers and when you look at the situation in Japan in the 70s they had seven domestic automobile companies, uh, half the size of the U.S. economy, but very, very intense competition, and the, the, uh, that meant that they were able to come up with good products, well manufactured, and uh, they could uh, invade the, the North American market. And as we've seen in the last 30 years, the same techniques that were used in Japan for manufacturing... Uh, worked in the U.S. They worked in the U.K. They've been exported around the world. So coming back to something John said earlier, I think the critical features are one the demanding consumers, uh, which is the, which is itself a result of uh, of uh, competition, and uh, it it played a very big role in I mean, the absence of these features played a role in the decline of GM. Well. I think, it's, I think it's a good lesson for all of us. The problem is these things play out over 20 or 30 years, so it's very hard to keep your eye on the ball on this year-to-year policy uh, problem when you get on this kind of slippery slope that we saw with the U.S. automotive industry. It's just hard to uh, turn around. You need a crisis to make it happen.
3: Well, I, I thought Hal was going to use uh, a good example of one of his uh, rivals, of course, Microsoft, because I think that is an interesting example of where, you, you know, <laughs> good firms go bad. Uh, start off, you know, an you know, innovative firm comes up with good ideas, or well, quasi-good ideas, and gets very strong in a dominant position. And then, of course, you know, in some sense, the, the rock can set it, because, you know, as, as, as you get into a position of, of dominance, the strong incentives that you had to grow start start to weaken. And it, how do you shake firms out of that? Well, you require entry and threats from other firms, uh, like Google maybe, like other firms, to kind of shake that, those incumbents up. Um, so that's, you know, and sometimes you also need to have interventions again from maybe outside of the, you know, antitrust regulators as well. So I, I think that there is a natural dynamic at the very large firms, as, 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 as both of my other two panel members have been saying to um, keep that process going because the, a natural dynamic may be for those very large firms to uh, become you know, less, less well-managed. At the other end of the spectrum, there may be more role for policy here, is that one of the other things you notice why firms go bad is, is a generational thing. So you get an entrepreneur, sets the firm up, the firm may be very successful, not as you know, big as you know, the, the kind of ICT type of firms, but you know, when the guy, the founder, wants to pass the firm on, that's often very difficult. You know, the, the founder wants to keep hold of the firm. The firm's grown to a size that it can no longer be managed on an informal basis. That's often the key moment. And the default thing in many European countries, especially, is to hand that on to you know to another family member, often the elder son. And that succession planning of firms, and so that's often when the, the firm starts getting into trouble. That succession planning is a critical moment in the firm's life. So I know whether I mean. Maybe this happens in some industries more than others. Some way of aiding that process I mean, It's kind of, I don't know, guidance for some of the SMEs in terms of the dynamics, maybe where there is a role for, for, for information and policy to, to kind of help. But it's certainly, I think, Jeff, one of the moments when many firms then get into trouble is during that succession from the founder to the, the, next, the next next, in line. So it certainly
9: wasn't it any it was lack of MBAs <laughs> in general Motors. <moment. laughs> <laughs> Can I just follow up
6: on uh, on, on the point that, that John just made about the, uh, the successions uh, moment, which I agree completely. It's a, it's a very critical uh, moment. And I think this is another point where Richard's earlier question about finance, finance uh, is, is actually quite important, because finance is not just about financing entry of new firms. Finance can also be important in financing takeovers, takeovers of existing firms that are not that are not run. Uh, so I think, I suspect, one important obstacle of uh, uh, families relinquishing controls of firms at the moment of succession is precisely that there are very few buyers. And there are very few buyers because there are few, especially in European context, there are very few buyers because there are few financial institutions that are willing to back uh, this acquisition, especially for smaller or medium-sized uh, family firms.
7: Um, I don't see any more uh, hands waving, no, they're not hand waving. Can I I ask if the MBAs were spread across industries or plastic and financial services?
4: I don't have the source date here, but they were spread across uh, industries. By the way, some of the MBAs, I said, were exec-ed, part-time MBAs. They were spread across industries. There are some industries that attract a higher proportion, like very large sophisticated companies in the U.S. um, attract a lot of MBAs, general notice included, but also Google as well. Um, But they were spread across. And what was interesting, if you look at the middle-sized sector of the U.S. economy, how many of their managers had some form of business education it might not be an MBA and how many of them are subsidized by their companies, even quite small companies, to do that. So it's quite quite broadly quite, quite broadly dispersed in the US. We may explain also why the Chinese example putting so much emphasis on uh, business education. Sure. Question here and then I think we'll come back to the panel and fire some more
5: questions. Um, a couple of questions if I might. Um, First of all, if you kind of buy the, the
4: combination of the growth figures and the labour market figures that we see at the moment, then UK productivity is clearly doing quite badly at the moment. And kind of does this literature uh, offer anything in the way of explanation? Uh, because it's not obvious to me that the kinds of things that you've talked about today necessarily change in the last few years. And is there something that uh, we're kind of missing that will allow this to help us? understand the puzzle of productivity at the moment. Uh, And then secondly, a slightly simpler question. uh, Does your
5: data tell you whether the presence of trade unions makes any difference one way or the other to the quality of management?
3: Um, Thanks, James. Uh, That's a small question. Why is UK productivity (laughs) so low at the moment? Uh, You know, I I, I, I don't think we, we can say anything completely conclusively, I personally think that um, a good fraction of the, the measure of the UK low productivity now is a demand-side phenomenon. That we, Because our, demand is, is so low, it actually means that no, we have a significant output gap and um, Treasury policy to uh, fail to stimulate demands, <laughs> plus the things going on in the Eurozone are not helping. Uh, so, you know, there are and, yeah, there are supply-side issues, of course, as well. Uh, we do have a bit of evidence, actually, more recent evidence, where we try to look at how firms in Britain, other countries, have responded to the crisis. And one of the interesting things seems to be that the well-managed firms appear to be more resilient, in the sense that if you look at the industries and countries which had a bigger shock, the um, fall of employment and sales and so on in those well-managed firms has been somewhat less. So, if you thought that the UK suffers a management problem, maybe that's one of the reasons that we're somewhat less resilient, and that's part, maybe part of the problem. So, there's a little bit of, you know, we, that, that's very early early stage research. In terms of unions, there is a negative correlation, so uh, in the sense that uh, stronger unions appear to be associated with worse management practices, but that, and you know, that relation is not very strong, so you start controlling for some of the things, and you know, it's kind of negative and not really, it's just consistently negative, but always significant. The bit which unions do seem to have the strongest influence over is over the kind of people management questions, and in particular, the questions over, I believe McKinsey calls this making room for talent, but it's basically removal of underperformance. <laughs> uh, so the, 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 the union, unions uh, make, make that harder. That's a bit Beecroft like, so I should get go there and say. Yeah, I, I
5: actually had a question more directed to but I'd love to, if, if the others have uh, uh, some insights on this. And that's really related to so one could think of either you have to wait till you recruit better trained managers, or you could go into a firm and you could get a set of managers working much better. Now, I assume with your McKinsey hat on, you have plenty of experience working with firms and change management. One thing that people comment about public sector management in the UK and you know, speak to some people in the public sector and they claim they have people crawling all over them the whole time. It's really difficult to change. Um, so, could you give us a flavour of the experience you've had in, in, from McKinsey's point of view about actually managing change and successful management of a firm? Is it always about getting rid of the guys who are underperforming or can you turn underperforming managers into Frontier level managers with the right amount uh, of we can do with the
4: focus group training or whatever you do to improve these kinds of performance. Yeah. Well, I think it does vary according to the uh, culture. I mean, it's certainly, I think, you know, there's usually, usually in my experience, or when I was at McKinsey, a lot of uh, a potential to improve the output of existing managers. And, you know, this good-bad is just to say people are currently, you know, structurally underperforming should be tested. So you should give people the chance to... Perform that's why performance management and so performance management of itself can be a great way if it's done well of improving the productivity of uh, people. I think there is a lot of evidence, and this would be true in the public sector as well. That if you have people who are clear underperformers or undermotivated, it's very demoralising for the others, and you don't have to get rid of them necessarily. How you handle them. I don't want to imply a brutal approach is of itself an important issue, but there's a lot of evidence, it doesn't come out survey, but from other work on organisational behaviour, That people who chronically underperform, it demoralises the better performance as well, and that's true even more in the public sector, by the way, than it is in the uh, private sector. And this is a form of competition. It's Hull's point uh, applied about in and out. So I think performance management does imply some form of consequences, cultural or financial, Uh, for good and uh, and bad performance. My experience is you can improve the overall, um, coaching, mentoring, teaching, education, can really raise the game, bring in best practice a bit. Too much, like swamping people with consultants or bringing lots of external people, can have the opposite effect. Can have the opposite effect. So it's very difficult to my experience to answer, just do this, do that, but a very thoughtful mixture of raising skill levels, dealing with high and low performers, Selectively bringing in external perspectives, either external hires, possibly consultants, or thought, whatever. It's a combination of those. is usually, I think, what most well-run companies will be thinking about all the time, and also when to do it, because you've got to keep the culture of a company as well, and you can't keep changing everything. So it's a rather vague answer, but it's I think it's a very, very important.
3: That's very, very, very quickly. I mean, rather Rachel's question of this public-private yeah. difference. If you decompose our management schools, the bit where the public sector typically is very badly is around talent people management. So all the things that Ian's talked about, about how you deal with underperformers rewarding, you know, differentially better performers, you know, the whole, the whole, the whole thing about you know, promoting people based on effort and ability rather than tenure, the public sectors is much worse than the private sector typically. And that explains a lot of the observed management practices differences.
7: I mean, how would you draw a nice distinction between the things that go on within organisations and then things that happen across organisations? The importance of the, the sort of ecology, the environment in which things operate, and that I mean, we sort of zipped around between the two in the in the discussion. I would just really like to ask you to to just speculate a bit about on the public sector thing about the balance uh, between the things that go on within. The Um, hospitals and schools and whatnot are, are operating and the way in which the system is, is, is designed in the absence of competition and well any of you really um, the, 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 because I mean what uh, Hal describes like a classic cluster of any ind- successful cluster, if you could have done it the, the furniture industry in, in Victorian London you Know it's a very similar story to Silicon Valley, actually. Um, it's just the 21st century version of clustering at Silicon Valley, and an awful lot of the, the boxes that he ticks have got rather little to do with what goes on inside the firm, it's got everything to do with the way in which the whole sector plays out. Now, you know, it seems to me in the public sector you've got such a schools from what goes on in Silicon Valley or a competitive multinational, you know, uh, uh, export-oriented sector, that there must be quite a large amount of, um, of the explanation there as opposed to the practices that go on within a given organisation where, you know, 30, 40 years of the public sector have you know, seen endless efforts. Management and talent management and continuous improvement and all the rest of it, and maybe not done with sufficient energy and drive. But it's not for want of the management consultants helping us and advising us to do it. I, you know, I wonder whether just the design of the way in which these public sector industries, really like health and education, um, are structured, isn't, isn't a large part of the the, the story.
3: Okay, well I, I can give you my view. I can certainly give you my view. Uh, so my view, my, my view on this is uh, that just as we, you know, one of the big things we, we've all emphasized in the private sector is allowing the better managed, more productive, more innovative units to grow bigger and allowing the less innovative, less productive, less efficient units to grow smaller and exit the market. And we are very, very reluctant to allow that. In the public sector, and there's often good reasons for doing that, but I think we're too reluctant to do that. We're too reluctant to allow good schools to get bigger and expand, and too reluctant to let poorly run schools shrink and, and, and exit. The I mean, you no, know, of course we allow takeovers and other things, but I mean, I, you know, there, it's still very hard, and it's becoming easier, but it's still, I think, very hard for um, you know local for, for, for government-run. Schools to to expand. There's lots of uh, barriers put in the way of expansion of the of schools where parents want to send their kids to. And uh, I think if we if we removed some of those barriers to expansion and made that easier, that would be one way of uh, raising school standards, for example. Which I think you know, be good for management <laughs> Would also be good for the overall long-term growth of human capital in this country. So that's you know, and that's to some extent that's also true of hospitals. I think. I mean, Harder again because you know bigger sunk costs and the rest of it. But some of the, very hard for the civil know, civil service. I don't know exactly how you <laughs> do that, uh, but certainly I think schools and hospitals there is a you know big big win, a big prize potentially to allow those forces to operate better. Can I just um, check something um,
0: in the context of government policy and policy interventions? I mean, we talked about a certain amount of supply size stuff uh, and competition and I, I'm taking it that the reason the dreadful words industrial policy have not been mentioned is
3: because it's not to be considered. It was on my side.
0: Is, is there any perspective on, uh, on the question of whether government should seek to have some kind of policy for mutilation but
4: Develops sectors, particular sectors, or whatever they do, or is that just completely not, uh, not relevant? Not relevant. No, sure. I, I, yeah, I, I think, I, think I, it's I, completely not relevant. I think if you do have a strong sector, I wouldn't look to undermine it. Yeah. And so I think it's an interesting debate about, about banking in uh, yeah. London, which is the equivalent of Silicon Valley for the, uh, the UK. If you think about growth, there are a lot of other factors than just growth, you know, equity, equality, and I understand that, political. But, I personally, I blow hot and cold on industrial policy, but on the whole, I just don't know how you, would, how you would do it, frankly, that's my, my problem with it, but I wouldn't discourage, you know, in a winning, winning way.
3: I, mean, I you know, I think, I think it, there, is, there is a role for industrial policy here, because I think that, uh, you know, we, the way I would describe it is we kind of, you know, we have a lot of different sectors we could potentially intervene, and so if we can identify some of those sectors where we have, in Britain, future comparative advantage in the growing sectors, we could think of a package of policies to help those sectors grow. That might be removing regulations, but that might be, you know, training interventions. That could include managerial training, improving managerial training capacities in the way that we've discussed. So I think potentially if we could think of that as industrial policy, I think we almost have a de facto industrial policy, no matter what we do, given the role of the government in the economy, um, then I think we, we shouldn't uh, throw that tool out of the toolbox.
0: I have a comment here, and then I'm going to ask the three panellists, uh, just in a couple of minutes, to um, uh, say whether they like, if possible, with a sort of emphasis on uh, policy conclusions that uh, the Commission could uh, focus in on.
2: So if I were to say on industrial policy, industrial strategy, echoing John's points. Um, a lot of the things that you've discussed um, on industrial strategy and policy, a lot of things that have been discussed today, skills, education, um, you know, exports, and encouraging multinationals to locate in the UK, all of those actually inevitably have a sector dimension and we spend a lot of money and government intervention in the horizontal policy space on those kinds of things. I think we do need to look at what the impact is on different sectors so that we're not wasting money and that we're maximising the for buck and I think there's another linkage as well if we did think that in order to get the incentives and the dynamics of companies caring about management skills right we needed to give them a little nudge then you could attach those nudges to some of the other things that government does with our businesses the whole time Um, and that might be a way forward
0: So um, I think possibly uh, time to um, summarize
1: would you would you like to start um, how? okay let me just uh, say that there is a paradox in, in what you're trying to do and we all face it uh, every day because the goal uh, is to end up with more jobs and less work so if you look at these productivity enhancing policies that we're describing Well, something that increases productivity in the long run, like lowering exit costs, which we've all talked about, of course ends up destroying jobs in the short run. Now, uh, the solution, such as it is, to this problem is to have a well-functioning macroeconomic environment because, after all, losing your job isn't so bad when the unemployment rate (coughs) is low. Losing your job can be a disaster when the unemployment rate is high. But as we all know, that's uh, much easier said than done, uh, particularly in this in this uh, macroeconomic environment that we find ourselves in.
3: I, I feel I feel I'm a cons- i am should be a consumer here as a growth commissioner <laughs> rather than a producer. But um, I think the I get three messages. I think, to follow. So one is that we I mean, hope we convince you that know, management does seem to be more important than was recognised ten years ago, and we actually have a method of of looking at this in, in, in a better way. Secondly, I think that um, one of the key things to think about is this between firm, between organization process and ways in which the government can intervene to smooth that process are first order, and we should think about how we do that, even if we can't create better management in every organization, but we can allow the better managed organizations to flourish and expand uh, more than we, we currently do. And thirdly, I think, I mean, a certain amount of modesty, we don't know all the, the, the solutions or how management relates to policy, but there should be much greater effort to learn from our mistakes and set up a kind of, I think, a, a way in government so that we systematically learn from our mistakes. Um, so when Hal talked about experimentation, I, I completely believe that's true, and what well, what we need is the combination of experimentation and then selection after the experimentation to Allow good ideas to, to thrive, good policies to thrive, and kill off bad ones pretty quickly.
1: Thank you.
4: And, uh, I don't have anything to add, set just this emphasis on management, and perhaps a plea this commission to just you know, to get more effort onto the causality of management and productivity and growth. And I think it's relatively very underwritten and under explored in uh, academic circles be helpful. And the other thing that hasn't come out because it's been focused on management is the interlink between management of macroeconomics as a house, yes. regulation, competition, you cannot, just that we've looked at it there a bit in a vacuum, but in reality it all absolutely uh, links. And I do think that if you focus on the management issues that matter, just having the techniques the road said is not enough, they're there, it's these absolute relentless application to mm-hmm. make them real and the suggest that we distinguishes good man there not that bad ones don't know about them, they do, they just either don't do it or they did doing it when they're not, and that's why benchmarking is so important. By the way, I think that's particularly important in government, that they start to benchmark themselves against other countries, or even within their own uh, sector. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm um, you'll be
0: really not going to try and summarize those three uh, excellent <laughs> presentations, but I, I've got some um, uh, takeaways, which I shall certainly be boring, fellow commissioners with commissioners within the coming discussion. I, I love the uh, uh, the notion of a conducive environment for experimentation. I think that's a it's a, it's a wonderful phrase, which mm-hmm. we should have uh, right at the centre of our discussions, and the um, policy frameworks that are necessary to to encourage that. I thought that was a that was a great contribution. Um, I thought that um, uh, John's analysis of um, uh, of the heterogeneity of um, of management across the world, and the, and as you, in your words, the big prize that's on the table, if one could find. Um, a sophisticated ways quickly in the UK where we have this long tail of, um, uh, we have some great performance, but we have a long tail of, uh, 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 of, of second rate uh, stuff, and you, you mentioned some uh, policy ideas there that could help to drive that, including competition uh, 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 and tax in, in, in particular, that was, that was important. And then I take away from Ian's uh, excellent presentation a lot of thoughts about the importance of demanding customers uh, which um, Especially relevant mm-hmm. here in the United Kingdom, uh, uh, your thoughts about skills are interesting, and I'm not sure that those are ones that we've thought about in that context here. Um, and the necessity uh, to to to, um, to benchmark and to test what is being done against international competition, and the importance that we have in the UK of uh, large foreign-owned multinationals in the UK, who, after all, do by far the largest amount of business research in this country, and in many ways are the most innovative. Um, actors in our domestic economy. So these are all three great contributions, and I'm sure I speak for uh, everybody when we say thank you very much indeed uh, for um,
9: delivering through this in such an excellent way. Thank you very much.